Welcome to the Contrast Church Podcast. Contrast is located in Grandview, Ohio, with the mission to help people be with Jesus, become like Him, and live out His mission together. For more information on attending our meetings, our missional communities, or giving, visit contrast.church. Well, good morning or afternoon or evening. Uh, I am coming at you in my office on Monday morning, re-recording our teaching due to some fun technical difficulties, life of a church plant. I feel like we get to use that excuse at least for another year, so that's always good. But um, we are continuing our, our uh, series through the book of Acts in what I dubbed probably the most well-known passage in the entire book of Acts. Uh, Acts 2, 41 through 47 is is, uh, really, really well-known. If people know the book of Acts, they know Acts 2. In fact, there's actually a large church in Michigan that is, the name of the church is 242 because they have named themselves after Acts 242, which is a really, really well-known verse. So I'm going to read it. Uh, You can follow along, and uh, we're just going to kind of go through it. Verse, starting in verse 41, though, uh, it says, So those who accepted his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 people were added. They were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Reverential awe came over everyone, and many wonders and miraculous signs came about by the apostles. All who believed were together and held everything in common, and they began selling their property and possessions and distributing the proceeds to everyone anyone, everyone as anyone had need. Every day they continued to gather together by common consent in the temple courts, breaking bread from house to house, sharing their food with glad and humble hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all people. And the Lord was adding to their number every day those who were being saved. So this is like this beautiful picture um, of really the first church, the early church. Last week, Mark, our trip, um, lead pastor at Movement Church, one of our elders helped plant our church, uh, taught while I was at Three Creeks, and uh, the Three Creeks pastor, Joel Trainer was at Movement. We all did a pastor swap, and it was great. Talked about church planning, multiplication, how to reach people effectively uh, with the gospel. And Mark taught on this passage right before this, where basically Peter gives this sermon, the first sermon ever, of repentance, and 3,000 people come to faith. And that's where we started here in verse 41. 3,000 people come to faith. In one day, I was joking uh, on Sunday morning at our church that we can fit barely 100 people in our in our room, which we're close to fitting. And I said, imagine if next week you came back and we had 3,000 people we had to figure out what to do with. Uh, that would be essentially 30 services uh, if we did 100 each. And that would the parking would be just a nightmare. It's already bad. I feel like we're in the city and, and parking is terrible. But, uh, man, 3,000 people. I was just telling them that, uh, you know, a lot of churches do a staff ratio of 1 to 50 to 1 to 70 people. So for every 50 to 70, like, church people, you have one full-time staff member. So that would be around 40 to 45 full-time staff members in a matter of a week. And I would feel like I would just spend my entire week just interviewing people and just like having to hire them because you wouldn't even have enough time. So thinking about 3,000 people being added to this community of believers, before this, you have 120 people. So I, I think we sometimes forget, you know, we read these and we're like, wow, this church was just so picturesque and so perfect. And I'm like, no, I think they had no idea what they were doing. 
and they didn't have a house big enough for 3,000 people. They couldn't, you know, they used the courts of the synagogue, of the temple, uh, because they had nowhere else to meet. And so it's, it's this messy but beautiful organic church that I think we fall in love with because we think about just the, the like the simplicity of it. Um, but it's by far from perfect. Uh, it's, it's, it's not even close. And, and there's, we're going to find that out the next several weeks. There's different things that they do where you're just like, wow, what were they thinking? But today I, I want to center around the things they're doing. Um, I want to center around the, the beauty of these rhythms that I still think today we try and preserve our church, other churches, uh, and really what makes a church and, and fall a group of followers of Jesus. Uh, and, I think of it as, you know, I think the best way to describe it is this is like the honeymoon of the early church. <laughs> it's the idyllic, the idyllic um, church experience without all the, the carnage and baggage that will ensue in the next several chapters. But uh, there's four main things they do in the first verse. In, ver- in 242, um, it, it, there's four things. The first one is teaching. It says they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. And I find this one pretty interesting. We talk about... Um, a lot of Christians like in America being like, uh, they use this picture of like these fat Christians where like we have all this knowledge, we like stuff ourselves with books and, and podcasts and sermons and whatever Bible studies. But like, we don't, we don't have like any, we don't move at all. It's like, if you ever seen the movie Wally and all those people are just like sitting in those chairs and they're all like big boned and have no, mu- no muscle because they just sit in chairs and drink sl- Slurpees every day. And when they actually are forced to have to walk. They like basically can't. And I think that, you know, teaching, sometimes we get, we get like, we have very opinionated people on both sides. Some people like love intellect, love teaching, think, think that the content is so important that like, we just need to sit under the smartest teachings, the best teachings. We need to be so well read. And then you have the other side who kind of jumps the far end is like, no, who cares what we know if we don't do anything? Like we just need to help people and love people. And so you kind of have this like intense, um, swath of of people and opinions and and you know some people think you need to have a seminary degree to be a pastor some people think you don't have to have anything you just got to have experience some people think you know um that you got to read if, if, if you're a follower of jesus you got to read books and if you don't then you just need to figure it out um but but what we, what we see here and what's beautiful here is we see mainly jewish people repent of the, the killing of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus for their, their own sins um, and turning towards the way of Jesus. And they have no idea what that means. I mean, they maybe knew the Old Testament really, really well. But what does it mean in light of Jesus and his crucifixion and resurrection and, and his commands to, to them now? So it makes sense that like the one of the primary things they do is teaching because they have to be taught the way of Jesus in relationship to the world that they had been living in and the culture that they had been in. I mean, it's not like they just burned down the synagogue and all the Jews left. I mean, you have to figure out how do you continue to live in a world of Jewish people and in the way that they do things. And can we do this? Can we do that? And that's what we'll see in the book of Acts is with Jerusalem, with the Council of Jerusalem. And, you know, they're trying to figure that out. They don't even really necessarily know. It's very bumpy. And um, for us in the same way, though, I tell people, like, if, if, you know, if we truly are followers of Jesus and we haven't read the Bible then we really aren't like we really don't know what we're professing we in fact we we have i mean now i'm not saying you got to understand everything deeply right you might not be a bible scholar and even commentators today still have differences in opinions in different areas but if you're not willing to know all the words of jesus if you're not willing to read them if you're not willing to see what he did if you're only willing to trust the words out of the teacher's mouth on sunday for 30 minutes or 
the one book that you've read or this one theologian, then you're at risk for some dangerous kind of tunnel vision. And so for us as a church, one thing we say on Sundays is that we really want, we want to teach the Bible. We want to equip people to not only be able to do it for themselves, but to understand it in a, a contextual way that makes sense and honors the narrative of, of God's words in the scriptures. Um, and so we teach that. So I think one of the best questions to ask yourself practically with that is, um, you know, if we ask ourselves, we ask ourselves, who was Jesus? Like, who was he then and now? What would he do if he were me now? And what am I to do in light of that? I mean, that that's like, I think the baseline for apprenticeship and, and being like Jesus is that we just ask those questions. The second thing they do is devote themselves to apostles' teaching and to fellowship. Fellowship is a very Christianese word that we don't use. I grew up in a church that had a thing called a fellowship hall, <laughs> which was basically just a gym with concrete floor. Um, but fellowship, and it's best understood as the Greek word, which is the word it is used, is koinonia, which maybe you've heard koinonia. I describe it and I define it best understood as relational participation relational participation that that you're participating in something but it's primarily through this deep level of relationship at the end of the day followers of jesus should have the most beautiful intimate relationships with people because they are by far willing to go deep they're they're, they're willing to take a serious analysis of their soul of their shortcomings of the beauty of the way that god has created them and um it's and it's just it's just life lived together really um these this, these disciples kind of just pause their their normal lives, I think, for a period to just really dive into this. And the best way that I could describe it is I had this season in college where I was just so um, inundated with, like, guys around me and relationships. And when you live in a dorm where doors are a couple feet away and everyone seems to stay up till 2 a.m., you just have a lot of time with people and you have a lot you can't prove you can't fake it after a while right like people just see who you are and there's a terrifying aspect of that but there's also an incredibly beautiful and freeing aspect of that and i think that that is the the, the baseline of koinonia is that uh we'll talk about the fruit of this church like later um but as you see in, in some of the other verses there's this like unity this common goodwill there's this there's just this light nice freedom that they're all experiencing and it's because of koinonia it's because they trust one another it's because they've they've blended together what would be at this period of time in the first century just remarkably insane <laughs> i mean you've got people with different uh social classes races uh spending life together rich and poor doing like eating at the same table i mean it was it was boldly pushing through what was a very stratified specific type of way of living and these Christians that they would be called were all kind of seeing each other as one and, and, and melding together. And so I say for us as a church, Sundays are a really terrible way to experience koinonia. Um, you, you get about 30 seconds to talk to somebody and, you know, most times you say, hey, how was your week? And if someone actually said, you know what, it was terrible. I had all these things going on. We like don't even know what to say. We look at them like, oh, okay, well, um, you know, I need to talk to the next person behind you. So can you move along? <laughs> you would just say, oh, it was good. It was whatever, you know? But we know that Sundays aren't about that. And we even say that, like Sundays are for worshiping, they're for teaching and learning, and they're for celebrating. And we don't find a lot of deep community in Sundays, but that doesn't mean there's still not value in them. And we'll see that as they 
we see these disciples praising and thanking God for what he's given them. There's still value in that. But koinonia, we believe, happens in cores and MCs and organic relationships and discipleship relationships. It's it's the opportunity to go deep. It's a lot of time spent with people, and it's in ways that you can really understand one another. And it's terrifying, but it's incredibly rewarding. In fact, I've said that most people I don't think have ever really experienced true koinonia because if they have... Uh, they have a different level of, of relationships that they they sow into and uh, and are able to be for others. The next one is breaking of bread. Breaking of bread. This one, um, commentators argue about whether it was specifically just like meals over a table or it was specifically the Lord's Supper, the breading cup, what we offer every Sunday as a reminder and sacrifice that Jesus told us to partake in when we gather. And um, either way, I think it's safe to say that they were sitting around a table in someone's house doing this. And I think there's a remarkable beauty in that, especially in this culture, you know, when you're eating dinner with someone, I mean, even, even today, most people you have over for dinner, you probably like love and respect or know well, but back then it was an incredible sign of allegiance or just like loyalty to one another. And so eating with your enemies was a very, 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 it was a no, no. And in this moment, you have Christians, like I said, who are rich and poor eating together. You have Christians who are different, like some Jewish, some Gentile, right? Eating together and trying to find what it, mean, find what it means to follow Jesus together. It's a remarkable thing and powerful, but it's life lived over a table. And I, I tell people today that I think if you're a follower of Jesus and you're not finding ways to be hospitable, then you're not, you're not emulating the way of Jesus. That doesn't mean that you have to have a giant farmhouse with a table that seats 15 people, but... What it does mean is even in your apartment that doesn't even have a dining room table that you find ways to be be hospitable in your common space at your apartment or you go over to someone else's house and they cook and you bring dessert and appetizers or you find ways to invite people into into your life. It's it's not just opening up your your physical home, but it's giving people a space to rest, to feel the presence of Jesus in the way that you love them. And I think that anybody is able to do that. The last one then is prayer. And prayer is unique because at this point you have a bunch of Jews who have set ritualistic prayers all throughout the day and it would argue in the way that it's written that they were still doing that and praying together in the name of Jesus. So you have this kind of tension where they're still being like rule-following Jews, you know? I mean, we forget that Jesus was indeed a rule-following Jew and that he did the prayers and the rituals and was celebrating Passover and valued that and for what it was fulfilling in light of his sacrifice. So these Jews are still engaging in the synagogue, and that's why you, you see them like teaching on the, in the courtyards because they're still on this fringe of trying to figure out how do we, how do we live this out when everything around us is Jewish. Um, but they're, they're praying together, one another. They're praying in one spirit, we saw, and they're doing that because they're they're really just trying to let the Spirit guide them into what Jesus is calling them into. And I want to take a moment here. I used a whiteboard. I'm going to put up an illustration that will hopefully describe this if you're, if you're listening uh, on the page, on our webpage. But um, what's going on here is, is really is, is sort of a unique, um, holistic way of growing in following Jesus. And, and what I mean by that is I like to explain, I talked last few weeks about uh, Paul's prayer in Ephesians where he kind of gives you this outline where you basically what he does is he's praying that we would experience Jesus in this way and what it is is the foundation is the Holy Spirit right the Holy Spirit is the one who motivates our hearts allows us to experience and understand and grow in Christ's love and so he says 
from the Holy Spirit, you'll be, he prays, you'll be rooted and grounded in Christ's love. That's the foundation that we understand the gospel has nothing to do with us, but everything to do with Jesus and the gift that he's given us, regardless of what we do. And then from that, we experience the reality of that through what I would argue is two different ways. You have subjective experience and objective knowledge. Subjective experience is maybe a really powerful experience you've had. You've seen the tangible life of God around you. Uh, whether it's like a healing or God, you feel like God spoke to you or a dream or just like really powerful ways that God healed a marriage or, or um, something that is very subjective, meaning that like you experienced it and had weight in your life, but it maybe doesn't always translate to other people. Then you have the objective uh, knowledge, which is like where you've learned truths about Jesus, about his resurrection, about God, whether that's in the Bible or you just Maybe you're like an apologetics person and you've studied the historical data, right? You've read Josephus, the first century Jew who attests to Jesus's life. And and so you find these things that everybody can sort of maybe agree on, but value at different levels. So there's different ways you experience this, right? Like we experience it in Jesus when he teaches, he's giving us an objective truth. But when we see him heal, it's a subjective experience for those who are around him. So anyway, so that's how Paul explains it. And then at the end of the day, when we, when we, when we kind of filter through that, we experience what he calls the fullness of Christ, the fullness of Christ. And I want to shift that to kind of another way of thinking for the way that's going on in this church. These things that are occurring in this honeymoon stage of the church are not the means to perfection. We even talked about, I mentioned earlier how this church is far from perfect. But what it is, is it's setting up rhythms so that you can best be well-rounded in experiencing Jesus. And answering the question of what does it mean to be well-rounded, that's where I take this illustration. So imagine you have three circles. This is a tri-diagram, getting really nerdy here. A Venn diagram would be two. Tri-diagram has three. And one of the circles, I'm going to use the the churchy terms, but I'll explain each one of them. The the top left circle is orthopathy. Orthopathy means right feeling. Path means pathic feeling. So right feeling. That means you're having the right feelings and emotions and engagement with Jesus in that way. So for example, really powerful worship experience or camp high or uh, a, a real moment where you just felt really, really loved by Jesus, whatever. It's it's these feelings. It's right feelings about Jesus in light of that arena. But then you have another bubble on the right that's orthodoxy. Orthodoxy is right thinking. You've probably heard that word. Um, there are the orthodox Jews. They kind of stole that word to say we have the right thinking, which is funny. But orthodox holistically just would mean right thinking. So that means what are the things that we are pursuing that's right understanding of Jesus? Meaning, what does he say in the Bible? How do we follow that? That's following an orthodox view, right? Like we're trying to pursue intellect and teaching so that we might understand and have right thinking with following Jesus. And then the last one is at the bottom is orthopraxy. Orthopraxy is right doing. So you have ortho orthopathy, orthodoxy, and orthopraxy, the more uh, simple way to understand this, and you maybe you've heard this, is you have your your praxy, your emotion, which is your heart, then you have your orthodoxy, which is your head, and then you have your orthopraxy, which is your hands. So heart, head, hands. And what we find is when we're actually pursuing all three of these together in light of following Jesus, that we have a really holistic, healthy understanding of what it means to follow him. But if we only have one, real bad, if we have two, we're still missing the mark. Let me, let me show you this. So let's say that you have right thinking and you have right doing, right? What does that make you? That makes you a Pharisee, actually. The Pharisees knew the Bible better than anyone else. They knew it, right, right? Orthodoxy. They practiced it. In fact, they practiced it over 
what was kind of prescribed to them. They would fast three times a week when they didn't didn't need to, orthopraxy. So, but they didn't have a right heart, a right feeling, a right understanding of Christ in light of what was going on. And so they were Pharisees and they were missing the mark, even though they crushed those two. But what happens if you have right feeling and right thinking, right? You have somebody who like feels the love of Jesus and wants to follow him with all their heart and passion and then they know the right things to do, but they don't do them. That's a, I have no way other to describe this than the lazy, cozy Christian. Uh, and maybe even the consumer, the American consumer Christian. They like know the stuff. They've heard the podcast. They understand what they should do. And they, in fact, they know it, and they probably are a little bit hypocritical for others because they think they have it all figured out. But they don't do anything. They sit on their butts. They are the people in the chair in Wally that don't move and just just blabber about right things and how they feel, but they don't actually do anything. And Jesus says, hey, if you don't serve and love the lost and love these like you're loving me, then you have no part with me. And there's a reality to that. It, like You can't just understand the gospel truth and just sit and do nothing about it. Then the third one is, uh, let's say that you have right thinking or right, right feeling. You have orthopathy, your heart is in tune and you're doing right. But you have no orthodoxy. You have no like theological understanding about what you're doing. And I have, I have no way other to describe these than just like a rebel, maybe like a mystic. It's somebody who maybe has been around your life and they claim a lot of things for Jesus that just don't seem right or every or everything everything spiritual all navigates towards Jesus right the horoscope the crystals the the uh the different religions right they all have like a spiritual centered realm to Jesus and and we get really you got to be really really careful with that because if you don't have orthodoxy then you can start to fall down those paths and we believe there's one way to Jesus that Jesus is I am the truth and the life and no one can come to the the father except through me and we miss the orthodoxy so some of us have biases right we might have a life where we absorbed or understood or valued one of these more than the other or maybe two of these but at the end of the day the book of acts we see that you have to have all three of these you have to be willing to pursue the teachings of jesus you have to be willing to have a heart that's wrecked and burdened and, and, and passioned for jesus and his heart as we saw he had compassion on those who were bewildered like sheep but then you also have to have, you actually have to do stuff. Like you can't just live your whole life saying, oh, I want to do this. I want to do that. I know I should do this. And then not do anything because imagine if Jesus had done that. I don't really want to go to the cross. I know I should. I know it's powerful. I know it's important, but I'm not going to do it because I don't want to do it. You have to have all three of these. And that's what we're looking at with a holistic follower of Jesus is a blend of all of these. And then I think what you get is you see verse 43. Reverential awe came over everyone and many wonders and miraculous signs came about by the apostles. There's this like, and I love the word, I love the phrase reverential awe. There's like this amazing excitement, but there's reverence in it. It's a powerful like, man, God is here doing things. And it says that many wonders and miraculous signs came about by the apostles. These 3,000 who followed him really had only seen the one miracle tangibly of them speaking in their own native tongues that they understood. And that obviously is a miracle in itself, but they weren't like healing people left and right. They weren't shooting out money. They weren't like doing all these things that maybe we see later in the book of Acts. And so there's a, a trust and a belief there that is really, really genuine and valid. And I think that these four simple practices, teaching, koinonia, breaking of bread, prayer, these are not the means that save anyone or that it's like, it's not a formula that you plug in. But what we know is the fruit of this was people following in a holistic way of following Jesus, that through these things, they experience all these. This is why I love koinonia. I love that phrase so much because I think it actually 
helps you with all three. When you are vulnerable and true to intimate in community, you're going to help people cultivate a right heart for Jesus. You're going to help people cultivate the right thinking because they can refine your thoughts and your truths. And you're going to have people who, who want to be like Jesus in the way they live. Like they want to go serve people together. They want to go do things in the way of Jesus. And I think what we see then is in 44 and 45, this really, really cool fruit. And really what this is, I'm going to boil it down before I read it, is it's just unity. It's like super raw, beautiful unity. It says in 44, all who believe were together and held everything in common. They began selling their property and possessions and distributing the proceeds to everyone as anyone had need. And people get a little bit nervous about this. They're like, is this, one commentator said, is this communism? He's like, no, absolutely not. It's voluntary, contemporary, discretionary. It's not communism. But people get nervous about this, right? Because we've seen cults do the same thing. Now they share everything and then the leader gets to decide where it goes and and, and typically like they're manipulating the people that are in it. And this doesn't seem that far off, right? We get nervous. But but here's what I'd argue. The reason why this is so beautiful is because you have to think about at what point do you, like how, how do you get to a journey to where you get there? Like how do you get to a point where several thousand people are just so like good with each other? They're like, yeah, let's just, let's just throw it all together and just trust it. Like if there's people that have needs, let's make those needs and not need. Like let's serve them and meet them where they are and let's just be willing to sell whatever we got. Like the... Our hearts have been wrecked because of the generosity of Jesus in the gospel. Like, let's make that come to fruition in other people's lives. So, yeah, we get nervous about that. But I, I think there's there's a much deeper, like, um, process that's occurring for us to see this come to fruit. The best way I describe it is the best chocolate chip cookie in all of Columbus. It is the Brassica Tahini chocolate chip cookie. If you haven't had it, it's amazing. It's got sea salt on it. It is bomb. Sarah and I will go there quite a bit and we will get that and we almost always share one because they're a little pricey and I, this is how I want to describe what's going on here. There's two ways that I can share that cookie, okay? Typically, I go and pick up the meal and bring it home. There's The one way is I can I can come home and I can take that cookie and I can break it exactly as much as best as I can in half and then the fair rule that people know is, well, if you break it, then the other person gets to pick, right, which and which side they want, right? That way it's fair. And we do that, right? And we both get 50-50 for the most part, right? Maybe 60-40 if it's a real bad split, right? But for the most part, we get equal kind of parts out of it. The intent was equality. Now, the second thing that I can do, which I'm going to tell you uh, up front is the better thing to do, is I can come home and I can say, you know what? I love my wife. Babe, you take as much as you want and I'll be happy. I'll be content with whatever is left over. And now that's a dangerous thing because if she's feeling hungry and she's pregnant right now, I mean, that could be 90% of the cookie, could be it could be thirty percent. She could be feeling nauseous, but I'm not doing that with the intent of hoping that she's nauseous and that I get more out of it than what I if I would have just done the fifty fifty. I'm doing it out of a heart of selflessness, and then she because I, I'm basically I'm placing myself my, my vulnerability out in front. I'm saying, hey, I trust you. Like here you go, whatever you need, you need, right? Like it's okay. I, I'm putting your needs over my needs, and then she gets the opportunity then to reciprocate. She can say, you know what, hmm, I wonder what Trey's needs are. Like, maybe he does want more today. Maybe he needs more. Maybe I will actually only take a little bit and give him a lot. Or maybe she's like, no, I really need this today. I'm going to take most of it. That is the beauty of what's going on here. Everybody is so content in Jesus that they're saying, you know what, all these things we have, all these resources, some of us have a lot, some of us don't have very much. Like, who cares? So just put them all together. And when people have needs, we meet them. And it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. People get nervous. They say, well, I, does this mean I need to be able to, like, I need to give away my, sell my car, my nice new car, or sell my house? Or, like, like, no, it just means, are you willing? Like, 
are you willing to get rid of those things? Are you willing to part with them in light of the trust and freedom that we give to one another, knowing that like at the end of the day, like Jesus has got us, right? Like if I don't get any of that cookie, I'll be okay, right? If if I if I feel like someone's in debt and we want to give them money and it might affect our ability to fix our patio or like, I don't know, buy this thing, right? Then like, okay, like we'll be all right. Like I think Jesus knows the hairs on our heads and counts the lilies, like we, we'll be okay. And that is what's happening here is there's this radical renewal and revival in these people's hearts where they're like, hey, like all, the way that we've been looking at resources is just foolish. Like let's just steward these wells so that we can be generous. Now, I think one of the things that I, a small piece of this that I want to add to is the reason why this happens is because of the two things, stewardship and generosity. The church talks, we talk a lot about generosity, right? Generosity is out of gratitude. You bless others. You give what God has given you. But that's actually only able to occur, I believe, if you are first stewarding what God has given you all. You steward, meaning you manage, you're faithful to manage what God has given you. And then out of that, then you can be generous, which is you can bless others. You can be selfless with the resources he's given you because you've stewarded them well. And, and actually, and I know it sounds obvious, but like, I mean, if, if you give away everything you have, you, you actually are not probably being wise. You're not stewarding what God has given you for your family, for your, like to survive, right? You got to have things to survive, food, money, whatever it is, right? But if you steward that well, then you have margin to be able to be generous, in, in whatever ways can occur. And now sometimes God, I think, will call you to be generous in ways you don't think you can. But most of us, if we're terrible stewards, how do we expect to be generous? We're almost being foolish then. We're, we spend, you know, a gazillion dollars on Starbucks and we're like, oh, I can't support that person because I don't have any money. And it's like, no, no, you did. You just didn't steward it well. You made foolish decisions that now affect your ability to tangibly reveal the gospel to somebody through generosity. And we see this in a couple of weeks, we'll talk about it, but somebody was like, hey, I'm going to sell this field, right? I'm going to give it all away. And, 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 and at the end of the day, not everybody has fields to sell, right? God has maybe given some people a, a large amount of wealth, right? But in that, they're able to use that for the good of others. But somebody who has a couple of pennies or dollars to their name can still be willing to give it up, even though they might not tangibly, like it might not make sense to give up their field, Right. And I think we see that with Jesus and the, the widow is she gives the two copper mites to the, the temple, which is like pennies. And that's all she had. And, and everybody's like, that's foolish. And it kind of is foolish. It is really, really dumb that she did that because now she probably can't eat. But in that moment, it was, as Jesus would say, the generous, wise thing to do. And we and she's she's creating margin to be able to trust that God would provide. And I think in the same way, this is what they're doing. It's like, hey, like I might not have a lot. You might have a lot. But if we're willing to give all this away, none of us will ever have need. Like, we'll always be able to meet the needs of one another. And we don't do it so that we expect later, right? You don't sell the field and then be like, well, I'm going to get a field in return later. Or, man, when I'm hurting, then, like, people will really help me. No, it's it's the sense of putting putting our obedience out so that we can experience faith in light of that. And I think that's what we see here is these four practices lead into this spirit of unity, the spirit of, of common like beauty. And it says they had glad and humble hearts, right? They're not like miserable, like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm doing this. This is crazy. They're like, no, no, like we're praising God. They're having the goodwill of all people. And the Lord is adding people to their number every day. There is beautiful, organic discipleship occurring and people are radically changing all three of those, or, you know, head, heart, hands of their lives in light of Jesus. And so I think... At the end of the day, we'll see that the Church of Acts is by far, it is, it is not close to perfect. But they're pursuing the right things. And I think for us, it's an encouraging diagnostic, right? Like asking ourselves, 
you know, do we do we pray consistently? Like, do we have like a, a rhythm of consistency where we're praying for our church in union with Jesus, right? That we're in relationship. Do I have relational participation? Do I have koinonia in my life? Do I invite others into that? And, and am I in others? A lot of times people say, like, I, I'm struggling, or I don't have, I don't, I don't have friends, or I don't have people that I'm, I'm like really feel like are like this, you know, this koinonia. And I'm like, well, a hundred percent of the time, that you that you willingly give yourself to others. I've never met someone after that be like, I don't have this. It's always when people expect others to come to them and to like to be this for them that they get dissatisfied. And I'll tell you that that has never been the case in my life and the relationships that I've been in. And I don't think it'll be the case for you that uh, if I just tell people, if you run 100% at relationships and people and you are willing to be that for others, you will receive that in return. But if you expect people to just show up and to be that for you immediately, it's a very... It's a very hard reality because we're, we're sinful. We struggle. We don't love vulnerability. We have to see it model. We have to see it in the culture. And that is the reality of, of koinonia is it's not easily done. And it's, it's, a self, it's rooted in selflessness. Do I learn and allow myself to be taught other gospel truths, right? Like, am I, am I heeding teaching in my life, whether it's from the pastor or, or, or my, my group or the people in my life? Like, do I put the teachings into practice? Am I willing to be told I'm wrong? Am I willing to refine truth that I've thought I've believed my whole life, that I've inherited from my parents, that I've just been terrified about, you know, um, reading about, right? Like, we have those things. Do I take serious the breaking of bread, right? Like hospitality, am I living that out as a calling in my life? Um, am I taking serious the Lord's Supper? Am I reminding myself that something must die in order for me to live? Do I allow myself to grow not only in generosity, but in a stewardship that allows me to be generous? Am I taking serious the stewardship of the resources that God has given me? Do I, do I um, give regularly to the church? Do I give regularly to people in my life that need it? Do I have money set aside for that if that comes about? Am I stewarding money in my own life well enough so that I can do that, right? Do I, do I spend way too much money in this area of my life? Could I be more frugal in these areas, right? Like those are the questions that we ask ourselves that actually affect um, a lot of the things that we're pursuing. And then Lastly, am I engaging others with a glad and humble heart, right? Am I praising God in the midst of this? Do I have favor with those around me? Like the last thing the world needs is a bunch of grumpy, whiny Christians. Like I just think if we could just be the most freeing, free, exciting people in the world, I think it would change the world radically. And we would get to see the beauty of what we see in the rhythms of this early church. So I'd encourage you this week just to like, just tangibly think about where are these areas that I could probably see myself putting energy, effort, and prayer into in light of the early church in Acts 2. Thank you for listening to the Contrast Church Podcast. To learn more about us and how you can be a part of it, visit contrast.church.